One of the reasons we meet is not just to worship God and to give thanks for this this life he's given us, but to actually think again about this life he's given us. What we do with what we've got. Let's pray. Father, it is our desire to really hear you. And I would just ask in these few moments that we have together that you would speak and allow for us to understand what life is really all about and what you really want from our lives and what the response is to be in each and every situation with what you've given us and what we've got. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's interesting, you know, some things just never change. I saw this country song by singer called Sarah Evans who says, In a world that keeps turning and moving so fast, when you can't hold on to nothing and nothing seems to last, it's so good to know that love still remains. Ain't you glad that some things never change? So I want you to think for a second of just a couple of things that don't change. Just in your mind, just let it come to your mind real quickly. What are a couple of things that just don't change? Now, what I want you to do is, you know, somebody's going to be real difficult for you, but I want you to turn to someone next to you and just share one of those things that you just came to mind. Would you do that? Okay, those of you who found this a very painful exercise, you can stop. And those of you who haven't and really enjoy this, you can stop. If you would, please. Some of the things that I find is interesting as I was just thinking about this is one of the things that never changes, you know, it seems to go on as the sun rises every morning, whether you see it or not. The sun is rising. A newborn. You know, the smell of a newborn. If I even just say that, you can often just smell the freshness. Minnesota winters. Well, maybe they do. Um, Wrong on that one. Before we get into this message, I just want to share that there's going to be just what I call four elemental truths that come from this passage of Scripture, this command that Jesus talks about, really commands that are one that we're going to discuss. But before we do that, I want to give you some context of where we're at in the life of Jesus as we come to these last days that he has before he goes to the cross. And so as I've done in the last few weeks, and I won't do it in detail like I've done before, but it's Passover week where Jesus is at that final week before his death, the city is crowded, just jam-packed, so filled that the hotels and the outskirts of Jerusalem are filled. The roads are packed with people every day coming in. There are people who have come from all around the world, people who are um, Jews coming from far and distant countries for this Passover celebration, which was a yearly feast which they were committed to, and even God-fearing Gentiles who would all come for this. And as they come into the city, it begins really in many ways on Sunday, which is the presentation day and its triumphal entry. It's the day that you brought the the lamb to the temple. And so Jesus triumphantly comes in and he presents himself at the temple. He leaves that day, comes the next day, Monday, which I call purification day, because he's so bothered, he's so upset by what he sees in the temple that he goes and he purifies the temple and cleanses it. And then that next day, He comes back and it's what I call prove yourself day, because now those who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and all the people are really upset, thinking, how in the world can this guy do what he thinks he is just done? Who really are you? Prove yourself. 
to us as God's anointed. And then Wednesday, I call it just preparation day. I think Jesus was with his family and friends as they prepare for the Sabbath. And some people think maybe the prove yourself day was more like Wednesday and, and they give it. But scholars are different on that. I kind of just think Jesus sat back and, and spent time and taught with those he was closest to. So he prepared for Thursday, which was Passover. And what happens in this week on this prove yourself day on this Tuesday, which we're going to be looking at these scriptures, is these religious leaders are, are, are outraged by the actions of Jesus. Jesus has come to a point where, you know, sometimes words don't do any good any longer. You just have to act things out. And that's what those those triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, the fig tree, which is cursed. All those things are three actions that Matthew wants you to see that are showing to them that they've rejected the Messiah. They're outraged, they're embarrassed because he's made them look foolish with their hypocrisy. They fear losing their power. And it's not just the power of the state of Israel in that day, the Jewish nation. They're afraid of the power that they themselves had. Because if this Jesus keeps doing what he's going to do, he's going to mess everything up. Not only is he going to take away our power, he's going to take away the power of the nation. And not only that, he's going to actually potentially destroy the Jewish faith. And if you think about it, any one of you who have ever come to a place, maybe you're today for the first time really wrestling because of some brokenness in your life or because your, your heart just began to start seeking after God and you start thinking about Jesus entering your life, Jesus always messes up your life. Okay, let's get real about it. He comes in because he begins to, to, to show you your protective patterns and he shows you your pride. He shows you your sin. He starts showing these things that, and he shows you the things that you think you're doing are going to get what you think you need and you want aren't really going to get what you think and you need and you want. But Jesus will come in and save and the word save means heal and he'll restore and he'll do the things in your heart. So he'll get you what God always intended. And yes, it will mess things up as you surrender yourself to him. But what they didn't understand is that he didn't just come. He wasn't really bringing an end to the Jewish faith. He was fulfilling all that was said in the Old Testament to bring about something far greater that would blossom into something far greater. But people, if you if you come to Jesus, say, I can't have you in my life. I'm going to end it. I'm going to clutch onto it. You will never experience the fullness of what God wants you to experience. So Matthew uses what I call a rabbinic method to reveal through these three things that he does. And for you to get the context of it, you need to kind of think about it this way. He does the the cleansing and he comes into the Jerusalem as the triumphal anointed one. And they come to him with a question. They ask on what authority to do this. Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. They ask a question. Jesus gives three stories, parables. They make it very clearly who he is and the rejection that was occurring. And then if you go from chapter 21, that's from those parables to 23, about verse 14, you then begin with a new section, 22, verse 15. And he gives three tests. They come to him with three different questions. One of them is about taxes. Last week we talked about the resurrection. This week we're going to talk about this great command. What is the greatest command? And what's interesting, we'll look at next week, is after they ask a question and then he gives three parables and then he gives three responses to their questions, he asks a question. You see how it goes? Question three, three question. That's kind of what's happening. He says, what do you think of the Messiah? That's the structure of what's going on. So let me just get into this. They come to Jesus to trap him. And the first one is about God and government. And everything you see about Jesus is about relationships. 
It's all about relationships. And so the first one is, what's our relationship to God and government? He answers that one and just blows them away. They come to him the next one and say, what about God and eternal life and our relationship with others in eternal life? Because the Sadducees really didn't believe in eternal life. They were not the ones who believed in the supernatural. In fact, in, a lot of people think they were the liberals. They were the wealthier ones. But in many ways, they were the more conservative. They only believed in the first five books of the Torah. And if you didn't see it explicitly taught there, they didn't think that it was real. So they didn't believe in the resurrection until Jesus showed him that God is not the God of the dead, but the living, which was found in those five books. So today, as we look at this passage of scripture, the Pharisees come to him after the Sadducees give it their best shot and they come to him. And they think we're going to really trip him up. We're going to ask him what's the greatest commandment. Peterson in the message paraphrases it this way. Matthew 22, verses 33 through 40. When the Pharisees heard how Jesus had bested the Sadducees, they gathered their forces for an assault. And one of the religious religion scholars spoke for them, posing a question they hoped would show him up. Teacher, which command in God's law is the most important? Now, I find it an interesting question because it reminds me in some ways of, of ordination consuls that I've served on, or it reminds me of doctoral reviews where I've been a part of some of these things. And, and what happens is when you get a really capable, good student, sometimes what happens is those who are asking the questions now start asking the questions almost a little mean-spirited. They're going to try and trip them up. And then sometimes they start asking really hard questions that they know they don't know an answer to, hoping that maybe this guy might know an answer. Well, they're asking those kind of questions, but their hope is to trip them up. And Jesus says to them in response, love the Lord your God with all your passion, prayer, and intelligence. This is the most important and the first on any list. But there is a second to set alongside it, just as important. Love others as well as you love yourself. And the two commands are pegs. Everything in God's law and the prophet hangs from these two things. Everything he's in a sense saying that, you know, in the Old Testament and he could say to us, everything, you know, in the New Testament and Old Testament, everything, you know, in the Bible, when you get down to it, the rules, the things the thing that you that you see here rightly understood. Are all hanging on this truth of love. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, if you guys want to know what life is all about. It's all about relationships. And he says it's all about ultimately love. And he says it in words and then in a few days, in a matter of 40 some hours, here's a man who's not just a man of words, but he takes his life and puts it on a cross. And he acts out giving his life in love. So what are these four simple truths? Truths that I think need to be reiterated. The first is simply this. Life is all about love. And the second is this. The best use of your life is to love. And then another one really important that goes along with this is loving well takes a lifetime. And the last is love is what we will be evaluated on when we meet God. Pretty simple. Matthew 22, verse 37, the NIV says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. It comes from Deuteronomy 6, 5, passage well known by the Jews in that day. And then he goes on and surprises them. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And there's also a second that's really like it. Right up there. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because you can't love God without truly loving your neighbor. 
I can't help but remind it of the great football legend and coach Vince Lombardi, um, who was coach of this overrated team called the Green Bay Packers. Um, It was reported that at the beginning of every season, he would get the players around him, and these would be all the veterans as well, and he would stand there with a pigskin in his hand, and he would do this thing which is just so simple and so basic that you would almost want to yawn, but he'd hold up this pigskin, he says, guys, this is a football. And then he'd point, and this is the field. Down there are two end zones. The whole reason we play this game is a win. He'd go through this whole thing year after year after year. Before they start anything, he said, "Let's just, we're going to go right back to the basics because you can lose things when you forget the basics. And so I think what Jesus is doing before he gets to the cross, he stands and God allows for these questions to come. And he kind of, in a sense, holds up figuratively this whole life of you want to look at religion or you want to look at what it means to have a relationship with God. You want to talk about the Bible. I just want you to know this whole thing about life is about love. It's that simple. It's that basic. Because God is love. His character is love. Catch this. The most important lesson He wants you and me to learn in this life is how to love. Isn't that funny? We get that all messed up. The most important lesson He wants you to learn in this life is how to be a loving person like Him. That's the elementary simple truth as he puts together here love God and love others as he joins these two commandments in really one word, love. Because it's in loving when you think about it that we're most like God. It's actually when we begin to love that we most fully follow the footsteps of Jesus Christ and we begin to live, if we truly do it, a selfless life. We begin to understand the words of God, His commands, all those things are about becoming a loving person. And they challenge us to be that way. And we begin to realize, once again, life is all about love. But it's really easy to get that messed up. What's the greatest command? We could all start thinking about different things. The zealots in that day had it wrong. They thought the greatest thing that they should do was come around with their zealous spirit politically and free Israel from the hands of Rome. And if you look at the Sadducees, they had it wrong too because they're the ones who are so much trying to protect not only their wealth and their understanding of that little portion of those five books of the Old Testament and, and keeping people from the supernatural, which seems to be kind of a myth, and, and they had it wrong. And then you have the Pharisees who really think they got it together. In fact, in many ways, one of the largest groups of the time, a growing group at that time, and they were all about serving God with their life. It was about laws. It was about being legalistic. It was making sure that if you did these things exactly just the way you should, you performed just right and you did it long enough, God's going to come up to one of you and go, boy, good job. You get into heaven. You get to experience me right now in this life. As if somehow by performing, you get into the grace of God and you live the life of God. And Jesus is looking at him going, you guys don't get it. Life is all about love. If we really got honest about it, we all screw up, we all make mistakes, we all need God really bad. And all about love is this, that you begin to give yourself to God in such a way that He begins to teach you this life that He's given you is all about how to love like He loves. 
So in verse 34 and 35, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees go, this is good. One of them who is really, it's a lawyer in their day, an expert in understanding the legalese of the um, Pentateuch and the prophets, comes up to him and goes, well, I got, a, I got a question for you, Rabbi. What is the greatest commandment? And you have to understand this question about the law and which was the most important law was a very hotly debated topic in their day. It was, again, their desire not necessarily even to know what the greatest law was. It was for him to choose one. And in choosing one, he would divide some of the Pharisees. And so he would divide the power. And eventually he would lose his following. And Jesus is so... One of the things you need to do, whenever you get confused in life and you start saying, man, I'm just not understanding these things about God and the Word of God... Always go back to the heart. What was the intent? That's what you see Jesus again and again when he would deal with these people. He would always go back to Genesis or back to the early parts of Moses. And he would get back to what's the intent. And this is why Jesus answers the way he does. Because he wants them to know the greatest commandment is based in the greatest command which is love. And the foundation of every command that they were struggling to try and perform to do well was off base because it was not about love now. It was about them proving themselves and God saying, you know what, the whole reason Jesus came was to prove that you couldn't do it, but He has come to love you in His strength. And if you're just willing to trust in that, then you will begin to live in His grace and His love begins to change your heart because no longer is it you're trying to do something for God. Now you start saying, God, you need to do something in me. Huge shift. God, I've got to start paying attention to my heart. I've got to quit worrying about my wife or my kids in, in some ways. I have to start saying, what are you doing in me? What kind of changes are happening in me that I'm becoming? Am I becoming a more loving person? That's why when you look at every command that's in Scripture, whether it's don't lie, cheat, or don't steal, or don't have sex before marriage, or don't, you know, you look at all the don'ts, and all the don'ts seem really restrictive, but the reason for the don'ts, even the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, when you think about it, are not, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. You think about those, those are about the, the lowest common denominator of having a civil society. And Jesus goes a step further and goes, let's get to the heart. I tell you not to lust. I tell you not to, to actually hate. Because every command underneath it, when you get to the intent, is about love. And so he says, forgive, do good. When your enemy does something against you, love. What does that love look like in return? It may mean in some days you have to put up a boundary to protect yourself or some others. It's not a simple answer always. It's really getting to the understanding of, God, what are you saying in my heart about this right now? Galatians 5.14, Paul sums it up. He says the whole law can be summed up in one command. Love others as you love yourself. So often we forget, and I think like the Pharisees, we get confused and we get caught up trying to please God, trying to perform, trying to do these rules and to follow these things in order in some way that we'll have other people look at us and go, wow, isn't, boy, they are really got their act together. And uh, I love what Henry Nouwen says in one of his little devotionals. He says, the main obstacle to loving God is often service for God. There's all kinds of implications around that. I remember one time uh, when I was serving in another church and 
my wife was very involved in the whole music stuff that was going on. She played the piano and in practice, and she, I mean, it was a real big deal. So when we, you know, if, if she wasn't there at the piano, it was a big deal. Well, that morning she was getting up and leaving, and I had already been to church. She was just on her way to get to church, and as she was pulling out, our neighbor, who was standing with an 8-year-old, her 5-year-old, and I think 2-year-old, she looked just a mess, her, our neighbor did. Not my wife, but our neighbor. And... Um, and my wife said, what's, what's up? And, and she said, well, my husband's away. I got three kids in our house. Just, the basement's just flooded. And my wife was torn and knew she had responsibility to the church. And I honestly think in some ways, just to be honest about it, she was probably afraid of my reaction if she didn't come. You know, I'm being honest. And she came to church, and I think about it today because that changed her whole perspective of love and what it means to serve. I sometimes wonder if that morning, if I would have just stood up before the people, I think this message would have been much stronger. I think if I had said, friends, my wife isn't here to play the piano today and for the music to go away it is. She's actually out serving and loving our neighbor rather than serving here in the church. And she's helping her with a flooded basement with these three little kids. So we're going to sing a cappella. I, I do think sometimes the greatest obstacle of loving God and loving others is sometimes our, our need to perform and serve. There's another thing is this. The best use of your life is to love. It seems pretty simple that life is all about love at its foundation, but at the same time, the best use of your life is to love. It's really what it's all about. And again, we get this all messed up. But the best use that you can use your life for, if you give your life to anything, may it be out of a heart that's filled with the love that comes from God. That's why verse 37 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And I got to say, um, you have to hear those things because this was a this is a big deal in the Old Testament to call people to use their mind. A lot of faith in those days were very emotional and it was very much an ecstatic kind of experience. And, and, and in that day, what was so unique about the Jewish faith was the fact there was a call to the intellect. So like when I share in this, this morning that, you know, I think Tuesday was prove yourself day. When it comes to scripture, there are scholars on both sides. In fact, if you were here last week, Warren Coe, who spoke, Village School of the Bibles, another scholar in his own right, what he said when I was listening to the messages, he thought it was Wednesday was the day. Scholars are you to use your mind to think through, use all the things. In fact, one of the things I loved about the school I went to, and as you think about a college or you think about someday a graduate school or seminary, go to places that don't spoon feed you truth, but go to places that challenge you to use your mind, to use your heart and to use your whole soul, your experience to come around what you can understand. Because God has given you a spirit, like I said a long few weeks ago, you have the mind of Christ, so use it and use your whole life. Engage it all, is what Jesus seems to be saying. And he basically says, you know, a life that is fully given in love with your heart's passion and your soul's prayer and your mind's energy will never be a life that's wasted. I had the opportunity this last week to be an MC and be involved with... Um, uh, some other, uh, another speaker, some uh, that at a, at a, a event called Food for the Hungry, where we were raising money for the marginalized, vulnerable, and the poor throughout the world. 
And it was a really neat and wonderful event. At one point, some of the people who work dirt cheap, really honestly, get paid hardly anything. One of the guys got up. He has his his Harvard degree. Another person stood up who had gone to a a, a well-known college and then gone on and got an Ivy League graduate degree. They stand up and they start sharing about their lives and how they're giving their lives to a relief area in different parts of the world through this organization, Food for the Hungry. And I, I was to get up afterwards and to tie that up, and I was just emotionally just moved. There are some people, the brightest among us, could be just making all kinds of money. And then I stood before a group of people like this who were really bright in themselves, who had, who had given their lives in a good way to a career to make money, and they were giving their money, their love, in return to help support those who really need it. And I just thought to myself, that's the way it should work. People who find their gifts, whether it's in a calling that, that's not in a full-time Christian service, but every calling that is under God is a Christ calling, that you find yourself, whether it's a vocation or an avocation, or serving like we saw in the nursery, or serving like in an English second language class that Maple Hill Estates, or maybe serving like in the youth group, working with those who are in, in middle school or in, in, in teens in high school and things like that, or, or, or working in different places, whether you go to Peru or, or, or you're giving money as we are to pave the way to build a clinic on Mongolia. You think about all these things and I go, isn't it cool that God so designs it that your best use of your life in love can make a difference in the lives of other people? And why is it the best? Paul says it really clearly in 1 Corinthians 13. He basically lists all these things you can do. You can speak eloquently. You can speak God's word of power and move mountains and have faith that does that. You can give all kinds of money to the poor. If you look at the last line there, so no matter what I, can, what I say or what I believe and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Mother Teresa said, it's not what you do, but how much love you put into that which you do. And I just challenge you to think about the best use of what your life right now. If life is all about love and all comes from the foundation of that, is your heart expressing God's love through what you're doing? And then this other point, which is just a simple ABC, is loving well. To do this well takes a lifetime, and God knew that. He was not making mistakes. There was no point where he goes, well, you know, if they just do this for about 10 years, they could graduate from the love thing and then go into other commands. Anybody, anybody here has graduated yet? Oh, come on. I'm sure there's a few. You see, learning to love unselfishly is a very difficult task. It is not easy. And as I've been growing in my own walk with God in relationship to trying to to understand that the first people that I should love most and well and best are my family. And then learning how to love the friends God's placed around me and then learning how to love this church family and what I've been called to do. And I've come to realize that if you're really going to get in touch with your selfishness, the self-centeredness that we have, which we can just call pride and sin, if you're really going to understand the, the strategies that you developed when you're young that seemed to work but were really selfish strategies, they work for a time. Now you find out in a marriage or you find out in a work situation, you find out in relationships that it isn't working anymore. It's God's way of knocking on your heart and saying, guess what? Those strategies, if you just look at yourself, I've given you this life time and so i want you to learn i want you to move as proverbs says from being the fool to being one who is wise and begins understands 
What's going on in your heart? You know, I think it's interesting if you read this passage of Scripture in Leviticus, he, if you get back to chapter 19, it roots this into something that's not just theory or, you know, like loving your neighbor, this kind of broad kind of thing. If you look at 19, verse 18, it specifically says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. So in the context of it, he says one of the first places to really learn to love well is in your family, one of your people. And I got to tell you, we all know with family, right? Kids with your parents, it takes a lifetime to learn to love well. And parents with your kids. One of the great things about God is he puts people in relationship for a lifetime in those ways. And not only about one of your people, the whole idea here is not only those who are your family, but those who you go to school with and those you go um, to you work with your fellow workers, those who live in, in, in relationship to you. Those are your close ones. But if you go on in chapter 19, verse 33, he makes this command again, but he says it a little differently this time. He ties it with loving the resident aliens, the foreigners, the ones who are, are different in your midst. And he says, when an alien lives in your land, do not mistreat them. The alien, the foreigner, the one who's different from you. Let's use that concept. The one who's really different from you must be treated as one of your native born, one like you, because you are to love him as yourself to remember you were aliens in Egypt. Basically, you're different too. And this command to love our family, our church family, our co-workers, our, those nearest to us, Jesus took and he gave a parable about a good Samaritan. The whole point of the good Samaritan was, here are these people, religious people, they walked by this person who was on the side of the road because they were so busy with their tasks, so busy doing the things that they thought they needed to do. This person who comes along, who you wouldn't expect at all, comes along. And Jesus broadens this idea of love your neighbor as yourself or love others as yourself to this. When you are walking daily and in your path comes someone who has a need and God, okay, God is calling you, so pay attention to your heart, to meet that need, respond. To love well takes a lifetime. So I ask you, you think about it. Do those who are closest to you feel loved. Look at it this way. In your family or, or circle of people that you are with, maybe at work, would they say, oh yeah, Kevin's a loving person, or whatever your name is. I often thought this would be a really cool thing to do. What if you, with your family, chose to do like, you know, a 360 review? And you said every year we're going to do a 360 review and you're going to point out where I'm not loving. And when that gets pointed out, I'm going to set goals this next year with God through Christ to understand that bankruptcy part of my heart and ask him to give me the wealth of his love to become a loving person. The last thing I want to share with you is this point. Love is what you will be evaluated on when we meet God. You see, when you transfer into eternity, you will leave everything behind, but the one thing you won't is your character. And you might find that as interesting because you might be thinking, well, wait a second, the only thing we'll be evaluated on is whether we trusted Jesus as our Savior. Well, that's true. Whether you've believed in the fact that his death and his goodness saves you, not your goodness. Yes, that's true. It's belief. But what happens when you believe, you see, belief is never also without action and work. And the idea is that when you believe, God begins to work in you and he begins to act in you. And if you don't become more of a loving person, if for some reason, 40 years 
years ago you said I accepted Jesus and you are no better. In fact, you may be even worse than you were then. You're not showing any character. The love of God doesn't seem to be operating. Says so there's passages in Scripture that basically say that. Your character will be different if God is in your life. And the thing evaluates you on is love. So I want you to think a second. This first commandment that Jesus gives is a very important commandment to all the Jews. It was called the Shema. It was the idea, hear, O Israel, listen. The Lord your God is one God. Love the Lord your God with all your might. And they would say that in the morning, and they would often say it in the evening. It was so important that they would say it again and again. God wanted them to get this truth implanted into their hearts. He wanted them to know that He is their God and love was what was important. So as I was thinking about it, I want to encourage you to think about doing this, because this is what it practically means. If you were to take these commandments, I'm just going to challenge you to think about taking these commandments, memorizing what Jesus says, and doing what a Jew might do. And that is in the morning when they'd get up, they'd get at the edge of their bed as they sit down at the edge of their bed on their knees. They would say to God in this sense, God, whether I do anything or accomplish anything today, I just want to make sure that with you by some point in this day, I will really have loved people. And so as I begin this day, as I look at the appointments, I look at the things going on, maybe you could bring in front of me some people that I could express love to. And then when you go to bed at night, you get down on your knees by the side of your bed and you say, God, I know I did a lot today. I accomplished a number of things. But before I go to bed, I want to examine my heart and I want to ask you, God, did I show love to anyone close to me today? And what did it look like? you think about it, in almost 4,000 years when this command was given in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus to Moses, it still remains the number one command. Some things just never change. Because learning to love well obviously takes a lifetime. And learning to love well takes a repentant heart. And it takes a heart that needs Jesus' ability to forgive. It takes a heart that, it, that needs to grow in patience because of Jesus' patience and set of boundaries because Jesus sets truthful boundaries to ensure that you take care of yourself, get sleep so that you can operate well. I mean, that's all about love. So I'm going to close with three practical applications. And the first is this. It's just reiterating that one point. The best use of your life is to love. And the question is, how does the best of your life reflect this? The best of your energy. See, knowing that one day you will stand before God and here, I want you to consider a couple of questions. How will you explain those times when projects or things were more important to you than people? What do you need to cut out of your schedule possibly to prioritize those maybe close to you? The second thing I want you to think about is not only for the best use of your life to love, the best expression of love is two things, time and, and your treasure. Focus, time, and attention always shows love. In fact, the way you spell love is T-I-M-E. It's you spend time. And we often think about relationships. If life is about relationships, we often think about there's something to squeeze into our schedule. You know, I can find time for my kids or, or I can make time for people I love. And the reality is it gives the impression that it's just a part of our life, but it really isn't. It's about our life. That's why when you look at these commandments, the first four are about loving God, relationship with Him. What does that look like in your life? And the second six are about loving people and others around you because life is about love and relationships. So what do you need to start spending? And who do you need to start spending more time with? 
and your treasure. What you invest in, Jesus says, is where your treasure is at. So honestly, you know, are you buying things? Are you trying to get more experiences? And, and I'm not saying those things are wrong, but in the right relationship, they're fine. But think about it this way. You know, God basically says, you know, would you just show me a portion of what you have? Would you invest maybe 10% into some of my work somewhere? And the best time to love is now. There is no better time than when you're at this place right now and you begin to open your heart and listen to say, God, what does it look like for me to love? So who is God calling you to love now? Galatians says whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, whenever that opportunity knocks. So I've asked Maya, who um, is one who went on our, our high school youth retreat and asked if she would come and share because I actually read of her blog. And I asked, would you just kind of tie a ribbon on all this with what God showed you? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Maya. I wrote a blog. It's actually Bradley Dawson's blog, but I write on it sometimes. And, um, yeah, I just want to share this with you. So uh, I just got home from my church's spring retreat a few hours ago. It was amazing. I could really feel the Holy Spirit moving through us when we were worshiping and praying. Our theme this weekend was spiritual makeover and how we can be fake on the outside, but eventually our true selves are going to come out. What you see isn't always what you get, but God calls us to be transparent and vulnerable to him and to everyone else. He wants us to be so filled with him that we spill out his joy and presence onto other people naturally. When people look into our lives, they should be able to see through our shells to the heart that loves Jesus, the heart that struggles and sins and lacks faith sometimes. Being a Christian doesn't always mean that we have it together. I think that putting up a front just hardens our hearts. The less transparent we are to other people, the harder and longer it will take for God to work in our lives. We are already transparent to God. When Jesus died on the cross, he already knew our sin. He knew the sin of the past, and he knew the sin of the future. He knows how I will sin tomorrow, yet he still died for me. Because of this, God calls us righteous when we accept his gift of forgiveness. I am a righteous saint who sins. I am not a sinner any longer. Just because I did something bad doesn't make me a bad person. God has seen into the future and knows the sins I will commit, but he still calls me righteous. Isn't it exciting? Teresa Campbell uh, also talked about being disobedient, which was so convicting for me. God is the one who said that we can be alive. He created us and gave us the ability to live. He's the one who allows our eyes to open in the morning. And what other reason would he let us do that than just for him? to show his glory and spread his word and be his hands and feet. So when God asks us to do something and we say no, who do we really think we are? Who are we to tell the creator of the universe, that the all-sovereign and powerful God, that we don't want to do his will? It was really eye-opening for me to realize how powerful God is. On a similar note, when we pray, we need to pray in belief. Hosea 6.3 says, Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. God promises to appear as surely as the sun will rise. 
The majority of the time when I pray, I pray half-heartedly, not really believing that God will show up and work in someone's life or even in my own. Yet every night I go to sleep believing beyond the shadow of a doubt that the sun will rise in the east the next morning. How do those add up? I'm not saying that it's not okay to have doubts sometimes and to go through the seasons of our faith, but by praying and belief we can be positive that God will show up, whether it's the way we want him to or not. One last thing. I was singing a worship song with the group when I looked over and saw one of my close friends sitting down. He wasn't really into the worship. I knew that he was having a rough weekend and that he didn't really want to be on this retreat. The Lord spoke to me and told me to go and pray with him privately. I was almost convinced that it was just my imagination and not the Holy Spirit, but I obeyed, and thank God I did. He agreed, and I invited the Holy Spirit to move through both of us while we prayed. I spoke healing into his past and present, and I asked God that he would reach down and touch him and be near to his heart, putting all the broken pieces back together. I opened my eyes, and I saw that my friend was crying because the Spirit was working, So I kept going, and the Holy Spirit filled me, and I spoke in a language that I didn't know. I've spoken these words before, but this time it was different. While I was praying this time, God told me that it was a prayer of healing from uh, the Holy Spirit. It was really cool. Afterward, we sat and we cried for a little while, and my friend received the healing that God wanted to give him. I'm so thankful for that. And that was really the exciting part of our weekend was that we to saw God move in such amazing ways. In closing, I just want to say that there is nothing you can do that will separate you from the love of Christ. Similarly, there is nothing you can do that will make you more righteous. He is there pursuing you constantly, and all he wants from you is a relationship. Try it this week. Talk to God about your problems. Share with him your frustrations and doubts and admit your shortcomings. Tell him the things that you love and the things that you hate. He wants to be your friend. Once that relationship starts, I promise that he will do great things in your life. Let's pray together, everyone. God, we open up ourselves to embrace that reality. That there is nothing that we can do. That there's no thing we can do to get you to stop loving us. That is such a hard thing to know. And so, God, I pray that those words, that that truth sinks deep into our hearts. That it sinks deep into the areas of us that have become dry. And that, God, you will refresh us. God, we pray in this moment that you... Show us the areas of our lives where maybe we have developed some tricks for getting our way. For embracing ourselves and not leaving room to embrace others. Lord, give us the self-awareness. Give us awareness for ourselves, not just for other people all the time. God, we pray that people around us would accept our love. It's easy for us in our minds to grow boundaries and say, oh, they would never accept love from me. After all the not love that I've given them. But Lord, we pray that you will soften those people's hearts around us. God, we do want to make a purpose 
of loving people every day. Give us sensitivity to those people who are around us. Give us eyes to see people who need it. Give us the words to say that will not just simply encourage, but really give life. We know that our words hold life. We know that our time and our actions hold life. And so, God, we commit our time and our actions to you. We commit our energies to you, and we pray that you will put them into the buckets and into the people that need our love. So that, God, when we do go to bed at night, when our head hits the pillow, that we will be able to ask ourselves the question, did we love anyone today? Did we love anyone close to us today? And what did that look like? What did we learn about those people that we loved? And what did we learn about ourselves? So we know you accept us. That's great. It's incredible. Let that be a reality to us, and may we be a reflection of that reality to the people around us. In your precious name, amen.